Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. So Shannon and I have been doing life group for some time now, and um, and Scott and Hannah and Matthew and Ashley have been a part of that circle, a part of that group, and uh, and one of the things we just love to do in our life group is take care of each other, pray for each other, just do life together. And so when we heard about uh, baby Jane, we knew that there was uh, a role that we got to play. Yeah. Part of the value of the life group is sharing needs and knowing that Hannah and Scott were going to have a baby. Um, we were able to gather together as a group and get meals and diapers and other things together. And in addition to that, we were also able to, um, each of those people have uh, connections and we were able to draw other people into the circles of support as well. And so it, it became something that we were able to do as a community for them. And then as Ashley and Matthew um, took baby Jane, we were also able to support them with childcare, other things as needed and uh, it was just a real community effort. Well, I don't know about you, but I sure felt like uh, that lady in that video was very articulate and well-spoken and uh, quite attractive. Um, she's my wife, in case you were wondering, um, but uh, that's Shannon. If you don't know her name, she's sitting right over there somewhere. I can't see her anymore. There she is, way back there. Oh my goodness. Back row, living, all right, and um, um, that's a little bit of a glimpse into our life group um, and some of the things that uh, we've been up to. If you didn't get, uh, like Pastor Chris said, in on the first two videos, uh, that will be one complete video package that we're going to upload to our website that you'll be able to see the whole story of uh, how uh, our group came around um, to help in an at-risk situation, which really propels us into today. Uh, today, it's my responsibility to land the plane when it comes to this idea of the stand. Every year, we do what's called the stand, and sometimes we've celebrated it for a month, sometimes just for a day. This year, we've celebrated it for two weekends, and tonight is the culmination of the stand. It's the stand event. It's at 6.30, and uh, the idea behind that is to expose everybody to those uh, in our community who are at risk, families or kids, and how we can be supportive in some way. And the truth of the matter is, and we just kind of hone in and drill down on this every single year, we get that not everybody, not everybody is called by God to adopt, but everybody is called by God to do something. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about that today, but we launched this last week. We launched this series last week um, in the stand, and the idea that we brought forward that Pastor Chris launched out with was found in Ecclesiastes, and the idea that was this, that there is a danger in isolation. There's a danger in isolation, and maybe you know this intuitively, maybe not, but the reality is, is, that, is that it's not good for us to be alone. It's not good for us to isolate ourselves. We were made for something more, and particularly, this comes to the surface in times of trouble in our lives, doesn't it? Like when you know this truth is real is when trouble looms, when trauma has taken place, when at risk is a reality in your life. That's when you realize, man, I wish I had a community. I wish I had people around me. So we talked a little bit about that last week, but today we're on a little bit of a different journey. We're going to look into the power and the practice of community. 
What is it about community that's so critical and so important when it comes to meeting this need in our community of at-risk families? And uh, when it comes to this idea of community, the fact of the matter is, is that we don't always mean the same thing, right? And definitions matter. They're important. Uh, when I think of community, honestly, honestly, I get that there's the community of faith, and we're going to talk a- about that a little bit, but the, the truth is that um, when it comes to how I think most people define community, it's not always positive, and it doesn't just belong to us. Like, we don't own the definition. Uh, that people have an idea that comes to their mind when it comes to community. And some of those ideas out there um, are, are different than what we're going to talk about when we talk about community. For instance, um, what comes to your mind when I mention community college? Right now, my daughter Kate comes to mind because she's in community college, right? Um, but but I remember I remember thinking about community college as a student going, yeah, that's where I don't want to go. Like it was a negative thing. Now I actually ended up in a community college and it was wonderful. But I'm just saying, like sometimes negative things come to our minds when we think about community. How about this? Uh, community sports. I mean, everybody knows if you really are serious about advancement in sports, you don't belong to the community team. You go to the club, right? You pay the dues. You get the fees together, and, and, you, and then you're going to be um, propelled forward in your career. Uh, I grew up in California. Um, the ultimate like, thing you didn't want to do in California was end up at the community pool. Like in the state of California, every chemical known to man causes cancer. But when it came to the community pool, Man, pour the chemicals in. Who knew what was growing in there? And so uh, this idea of community isn't always positive. In fact, let's just look at the etymology of the word for just a minute, right? How about this? Community comes from this idea of commune. Who wants to live there? Like, is that what we're thinking about when we use the term community? Or let's stretch that a little further. Let's finish the word. Communism. Now it's a philosophy. What are we going to do with this term? Well, here's, here's the good news. When we, talk, when we talk about the idea of community as Christians, as people of the household of faith, when we think of the word community, we go back all the way to the beginning to this idea of brotherly affection or kindness, brotherly love. In fact, there's a story told about brotherly love gone wrong that really becomes the foundation or the anchor point of our idea of community. It's a story about two brothers. You know the story. It's a story about Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's two boys. And, uh, and one day, Cain rises up against Abel and killed Abel. And then God comes into the story. And when God enters the story, definitions are ironed out. When God comes into the story, direction becomes part of the story. And God asks a very specific question to Cain in this moment. He says, Cain, I'm here because your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. And we're supposed to go in that moment like, this isn't right. This isn't good. Now, what is Cain going to do? God confronts Cain. And he asks Cain a very important question. He says, Cain, where's your brother? Where is he? Now, God knew exactly where Cain was. This was meant for us to understand. And in that moment, Cain does what is in every single one of us in that moment. Rather than saying, I've done wrong, Cain highlights something that's true of all humans and something we must fight against and something that begins to define what community really means. He says, God, am I my brother's keeper? 
And it's in that moment that he shirks a responsibility that we all know as the audience he must have. Like Cain, the answer is, I know what I did. And yes, I am my brother's keeper. Cain, you are your brother's keeper. You didn't keep your brother. There was a job you were supposed to do. And there's a job that we're supposed to do. We when we talk about this idea of community, we're talking about that brotherly affection, that brotherly kindness. Now, if you grew up in the church, you may have experienced some of this in your life. I know I did. For instance, uh, I experienced this um, early on in my church journey. My dad was a pastor, and so kind of had it in like with, you know, everybody who was doing the stuff. And, and so people welcomed me in, and I felt like I belonged, and I felt like I could, you know, become something. I felt like I was in an environment of growth, and it was, it was dynamic. And we'd have missionaries come through our church, and, and, and there'd be all this involvement of what God is doing in the world globally. But what was one moment in my, in my journey in particular that stood out above the rest, and it was a moment where we came together for a church meeting. And in this church meeting, the church leaders came together and said, this is what we spent on reaching the lost for Christ. This is what we've spent on missions this year. And it was a fantastic number. And everybody was celebrating the number. Everybody was celebrating how the community had gone, could come together. The church, our local church, had come together. And we had sent so many people to save the lost. But there was a new couple in our church. It was an older couple. He was in his 80s. And I remember this gentleman raising his hand in the back and simply asking a question. And the question was this. I'm celebrating how much we give for the cause of Christ all over the world. But how much are we giving to the cause of Christ right here in our local neighborhood? And, and the sound was deafening. The fact of the matter is it had been overlooked. It had been overlooked by the community. And here's what I want you to draw out from that. Here's what I learned, and here's what's so important, and it's true of our church. In fact, if you want to know anything about Church on the Rock, we began here. It is, that it is in the DNA of the church, and it is the DNA of our church, that we don't just exist for ourselves. And we're not satisfied by sending people out. That the reality is, is that we believe there is a call on each one of our lives to actually do something about the neighbor that we see in need right next door in our local community. And so every year at the same time, we raise up and we talk about an issue. And I know that for many of you, I'm preaching to the choir, but maybe not. Maybe I'm preaching to you something that's brand new for the first time. And it's the idea that the church wasn't meant to just exist for itself, to turn inward on itself. But the church was meant to live outwardly in the world in which God placed it. In fact, that's what we see when we encounter Jesus in the Gospels, isn't it? That he wasn't just interested in the household of Israel, but that he was interested and had time and was available even with compassion for the Gentiles, which was, which was uh, something that the Jews hated about Jesus. They used it against him, and yet it was something he was known for. That even though he came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he had room, he had time. Because of a compassion in his heart, he had time for everybody. In fact, he was meant to be a blessing to all people everywhere. It was always in his heart. It was always his design. And when he chooses to birth a movement we call the church, the thing that you and I are a part of today, when he chooses to birth it, he wanted it to be pregnant with this idea that we don't just exist for ourselves, but we exist for the people that we are in contact with, that God has placed us in proximity and closest to. The question is, are we living up to our potential? 
And it's the question that haunts me, and I'll tell you why. When I turn on the news and when I listen to the conversations that people have about the church, the church that I love, not church on the rock, but the church, you know what I'm saying, the whole church, the church in America, when I hear the conversations that come back, I often hear three categories of people describing the church. And they're not always, they're not always positive. For instance, the church is often described uh, not as this radical community of faith meant to bless the community and bless the whole world, but the church is described as a, a place where the law is kept, right? A bunch of law givers, the kind of people who are, you know, pulpit pounders, uh, the kind of people who um, are there to condemn the community that they live in rather than support and uphold the community that they live in. In fact, you've heard that. Here's my question. Here's my question. Uh, really, it's a statement, right? And it's this. If we talk about what is it that we're measuring as a church, how do we know, how do we know that we're living in the center of, God here, uh, of God's will? What is it that we're measuring as a church so that we can know that we're living in the middle of God's will? One of the measurements I would suggest, I would contend for this, one of the measurements is what the world says about us. Don't you think? If they are looking at us and they're saying, those people love us, those people are committed to us, those people care for us, that would be an indicator that we are living up to the mission that Jesus had given us. But if those people out there looking at us and they're saying, you know what, they don't care, they don't come through, it just feels like they're, when they show up, condemnation just comes out of them everywhere. Well, we've got a problem. We're not living up to our full potential. But we want to live up to our full potential. So we have to ask the, the hard question, God, what is it that you're asking of us? What is it that you want us to do? So one way to do that is to ask this question. When you think of the church, the local community, the body of believers in a community, when you think of the church, what word comes to mind to describe it? What word could you think of that comes to mind to describe the church? Well, there was a word, there was a word that was meant to describe us. And it was a word that, that was a word that was familiar to the Greek-speaking world, believe it or not. And it was the word transform. It was the word transform. When it comes to all the words that are meant to describe the church, transform has to be at the top of the list. That what God wanted to do through the church was transform individuals who would then, in turn, transform their world. Are you with me? That, that that's really the thing that, that is supposed, to, that it's supposed to, um, to be the descriptor of God's movement. That he wants to touch individual lives through his truth and he wants to transform us so that we can in turn enter our communities, wherever God has placed us, and we can actually bring a message of transformation and hope to a lost and a dying world. In fact, the trajectory of this idea is contained in the beginning chapters of the Gospel of Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 calls us to this sort of momentum, to this idea that we're supposed to go out and we're supposed to become something for the world. Listen to this. This is Acts 1-8. I want to read it to you. It says, but you will receive power. You're going to have power and you're going to receive my Holy Spirit. It's going to come upon you and this is what you're going to do. You will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and get this, even to the remotest parts of the earth. In other words, 
you are going to experience the Holy Spirit's transformational power in your life. And then you will be a carrier of that power. Where? In Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. If we're measuring how successful we are, our measurement, our measuring rod has to contain this idea that we are transformed and a transformational community. That we don't just care about what's happening in here, but we care about what's happening out there. In fact, we train in here so that we can meet the demands and the needs of what's happening out there. That's what we're about. And so when it comes to the stand, it just makes sense. The question is, how do we do it? How do we do that? Well, I want to give you an image or a picture of how we are supposed to live this transformational life out in the world today. Uh, because we can get muddled with all kinds of ideas, and I love the simplicity that we experience and encounter when we just break open the word and say, so, so God, what did you do, and, and what is it that you want us to do? When we ask those kinds of questions, I'm always amazed at how, how things are just unpacked for us. And so we move from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 2. The church's birth, the Holy Spirit falls, people start getting saved, and what happens next makes all the difference in the world and gives us an image or a picture of what God is after, what is supposed to happen here and what must happen here and globally if we're going to be a transformational force in our world. So here it is in Acts chapter 2. And picking up towards the end of the chapter, the, the writer of Acts is, of course, Dr. Luke. And so he gives a detailed account of the early happenings of the church. And this is what he has to say, picking up in chapter 3, verse 42. He says, they were continually, these new believers, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Verse 43 Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Here's, here's what's being said. Uh, here's the thing that captured their hearts, the church, early on. It was a devotion. That's a, that's a spiritual idea, right? It was this devotion to what? To the Word. Well, this is new revelation. They're sitting at the temple. There's this new community that's being forged what did God implant in his brand new community so that his purposes would be carried out, his transformational purposes would be carried out on earth? Well, he planted his word in his community. His word was, how do we know it was his word? Well, it was accompanied by miracles and signs. That's how they knew it was from God. That's how they knew the Spirit was sanctioning these words that were being spoken in this brand new community. So there they are, you picture this scene, and they're hearing from heaven, and it's being confirmed through miraculous signs and wonders. And by the way, anywhere where God's word is under attack, you should expect to find him upholding his words with signs and wonders. And so we find this in our world today, and here it is, they kept feeling the sense of awe and wonder. So what is it that they did then? Well, it's interesting, they were in this community, and they're experiencing the power of God prophesied about in Acts chapter 1. And so they begin to treat each other differently. We know about this community that it was a multi-ethnic community, multicultural community. And they were at the temple, which had been divided by ethnicity and culture. But here, 
God's doing something brand new. So they're treating each other differently, but look at this. They're also treating their stuff differently. If you want to get at the heart of a man or a woman or a teenager, start dealing with their stuff. Listen, listen to what happens, the spontaneous result of having encountered the word. Verse 44, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. There's our word. A better way to translate this is that they actually held all things in common. In other words, there was something that they were, they were holding. What was it that they were holding? Well, some of your modern translations bring this out. The word common is a good translation, but you don't really understand it if you divorce it from its context. This is at the temple. This is the place where sacred things are. This is the place where the relics, the holy things are. The holy things are kept. Where sacrifice and ritual are part of the cultic tradition here in Israel. And this word common is a holy word. It's a word that would have been familiar to the audience. And Luke uses it, I believe, on purpose. It is actually the word defiled. They held all things, all their stuff, as though it were defiled. That would be a literal understanding of this, te this text. Well, what could that possibly mean? Well, in a world where you had sanctified vessels and common vessels, sanctified vessels meaning vessels useful for particular worship ceremonies, particular sacrifices, and then common vessels which could be used for anything in the household, Luke is making a declaration, a statement. Something was to be characteristic of this new community, that they were actually to take their stuff, and it was no longer to be sanctified, if you will, set apart for temple worship, it was to be set apart for the community of faith. They were actually supposed to treat it as if it, get this, as if it was defiled, as if it was less than special. Listen, this stuck with the church for 200 years until a new teaching crept in and we went right back to relics, right back to sacred spaces. But it should never have left our vocabulary that something radical was taking place, and it was taking place in a visible demonstration at the temple itself, saying, something new has come, and now you must treat all your stuff just a little bit differently. So what did they do? Like, how do we know that they believed this or that they understood this? Well, look what they did next. They began selling their stuff. See? They had all things in common. In a sense, it was a devaluing of materials, but not really. You see, why is it that this was the language that Luke chose? It's because something new had taken place to replace the temple. There was something sacred here, but it wasn't the stuff anymore. What was sacred were the people. They were the new dwelling place of God. They were the new temple come down from heaven. And there were new resources that were to be released within this new temple because it was based upon better promises and a new and a forever way. Something was being declared here that was to be in the DNA of the church, the community, that was going to change the fortunes of the whole world. And it happens right here. And Luke wants us to know about it. In fact, if we were to go on this thing that takes place here is championed later by the apostles. If we go to, for instance, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6.19, it 
Listen to what the Apostle Paul talks about when he talks about this. He says, look, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? See, there it is. This was the theology of the New Testament based upon the experience, the image that they had all encountered on the Temple Mount. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You are now the dwelling place of God. Well, as you can imagine to a bunch of people who had been religious people and been temple-minded people, this changed the questions that they asked. And this changed their relationship to each other, and it changed their relationship to their belongings. That's what's happening here. And all of a sudden, this becomes the new definition of community. That whatever I have, I have been given, and it is meant not only for me, but to bless everyone around me. And this will be the picture that God is up to something new. This will be the picture, the transformational experience that his church will experience and then be able to contribute to the whole world that will allow the world to know that God is among them and at work and alive in the church. Isn't it amazing how we go right back to sacred places and sacred relics and we miss the blessing that our stuff is supposed to be for everyone. This is a hard teaching It's a hard truth, but it's ever a reality. And it's something that God wants to instill in us. And when it comes to the stand, it's our opportunity to buy in again to the fresh perspective that whatever I've been given has been given not only for me, but to bless those around me. So what happened? What happened to this group? Well, they begin to ask a new set of questions. In fact, here's one of the questions that they begin to ask with this new understanding that they were, in fact, the temple. They begin to ask this question, how can I walk worthy? How can I walk worthy? If I am the temple and us collectively are building a new temple and there's new rules at play, how can I walk worthy of all that I have been given? How can I carry this message in a worthy way? Which is to say this, there is a yoke if you're a Christian. There is a burden if you're a Christian. If you're called the temple, there's something you must do with your life. We're going to revisit that in just a minute. But there is something to be about. And we have to ask the question, am I living my life in a worthy way? Am I doing that? Am I living up to my potential? Well, this is what the early church lived up to. They begin to sell their possessions and look at what happened next. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You want to see that? Live like this. That's Luke's point. Which brings me to orphans and widows and the stand. When it comes to orphans and widows, it's interesting that not only was Jesus interested in this and he invites his church into it, but this is called or considered true religion to help the orphans and the widows in their distress. In other words, it's like the church was outfitted for traumatic moments. I know the world has told you you're not capable of it. The world has told you that you don't know enough. The world's told you that you don't have enough psychology in the bank to be able to help people who've gone through trauma. I want you to know that on day one, when the church was born, he outfitted us to be able to help those 
who were in trouble. And when we pull together, we do that effectively. We are a light and a hope to the world. And the stand is an opportunity to just emphasize it, just to shine a light on it, just to, just to take us there again and to, and to think about it, that this is our theology, this is our DNA, this is, guys, this is how we're wired. And we just need to live it out. There's a, a great book out there on foster care and, and, and uh, it's called Reimagining Foster Care by, by Jason Johnston. And, and he talks about this theology out of uh, 1 John. And so he borrows this verse, and listen to this. This is, this is his theology, and then there's a quote that comes after it that sort of distills it into uh, easy words. But here's the quote. He says, we care for the vulnerable because we have been greatly cared for by Jesus. He borrows this from 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. And the idea that, that here's how great the Father's love is. This is how, see how great it is. See how amazing God is in the fact that he, as a father, has called us children. And if he's called us children, if he's called us children, then, then we have to care like he cares for others. If he cares for us with that kind of love, then we have to, in turn, care for those around us. We have to follow his example to claim that we are actually following his example. Does that make sense? So how do we do that? Well, every once in a while, it's good to just have a couple things to work through, right? And, uh, and again, I want to emphasize, we believe, we know, in fact, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that not every family is supposed to or called by God to take on foster care in the sense of taking a child into your home. We believe some of you are, but we know that not everybody is. So where do you begin? If your heart, if your heart is to get on par with where Jesus' heart is and to care for the orphan and widow, where do you start? Well, I want to give you five things to think about. Five things to think about. I'm going to put up on the screen here. Called the five protective factors in family. The five protective factors. I didn't come up with these, but psychologists and counselors have come up with these five protective factors that if these factors could be true, then it would be the best case scenario, the best hope for walking somebody through a time of trauma in an at-risk situation. Here's number one, parental resilience. What parents need who have lost their children is they need other people to help them to be resilient. And they don't know how to be resilient. Their whole life is falling apart. But if you could be there for them in this moment, it could build into them a certain resilience. If you could be a hope for them when they can't see any hope, a light when they can't see any light, some truth when they can't see any truth, when all they're told is lies, you could make them resilient, and that's critical for a healthy walk as you go through this process. The second is social connections. The reality is, is that oftentimes, because people are isolated that are in traumatic, at-risk situations, that they don't have healthy social connections. They don't know where to go to find things. They don't know where the network is at. You could show them that. See, it's not about, hey, I need to do everything for everyone. It's just simply, I could probably do this for one. What if I knew who I could connect with with somebody? That's what social connections are all about. Number three, knowledge of parenting and child development. Some of you have not only raised your own kids, you've raised your grandkids. You are such experts, you should be writing books by the volume about how to parent. You're so patient and you're so kind in the craziest situations. The world needs your skill. God has honed you in. He has shaped you. Don't sit tight. This is your opportunity to bring and impart knowledge to those who maybe just don't have it. They just don't know what to do with their 
disobedient child. Four, concrete support in times of need. The fact of the matter, some, God has blessed some of us with just incredible finances. We don't even know what to do with it. Here's something we could do with it. It's just some people just need some financial support. Some people just need some, some help. It is help. It's not shirking your responsibility. God gave you money, and, and when we use it to his glory, amazing things take place. That's just all there is to it. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's like what we do at Operation Christmas Child, where we actually send stuff, concrete stuff, to somebody in need, a child in need. That matters. God uses that. And then number five, social and emotional competence of children. Uh, the fact is, is that not everybody is, not every child that goes through this is able to handle their emotions adequately. But to be next to somebody that is stronger, even one of your children, to help them walk through those emotions as the process continues on and things are ironed out towards a place of eventual health, God willing. To be that for somebody is a critical piece. Listen, we know how to do that on athletic teams. We know how to do that in, in our homes, but we can spread our umbrellas into the homes of others and do the same thing and bring emotional peace and emotional health and stability. And that's what's required if we're going to really address the foster care problem. That's what's required if we're going to address the whole problem. What's not required is all of us getting a foster care kid. But what's required is all of us, are you, are you, do you hear me? Is all of us getting on board with God's agenda to help those who are in an at-risk situation. You are a part of a church that believes that. You believe that. What are you doing? Well, here's what I love about these five things. God isn't just asking us to just, hey, here's a problem, go solve it. He is equipping each one of us through our own life experience and circumstances. He's equipping each of us uniquely to meet some specific need. Not all the need, just something. Question is, are we on board? Well, I got a chance to see this lived out in my life group, and I want you to turn your attention to the screen to find out how the story ends. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't you like to be a part of something like that? What a privilege it is just to be a part of a community that believes that we were meant to come together around these kinds of causes and not just turn inward on ourselves and enjoy the laughter and enjoy the food and enjoy the group, but to actually have a life group that is turned outward in action, serving the community, serving one another. Listen, there's no better 
thing for you to be a part of. And what I know is that the reason this story is told is simply because I'm close in on it. But the reality is, is I also know a dozen other stories. And you know stories in our church and beyond our church where people are doing this very thing and God is working in that and he is growing his church and he is building his church. I actually believe if you were to ask the community leaders in our community, what do you think of Church on the Rock? that they would say Church on the Rock is here to serve and to help and assist our community, that Church on the Rock makes our community brighter and better, and by God's grace, we will continue down that path. For those who are involved in these activities, God bless you as you continue. And for me, it's personal. Because for me, my mother was adopted. And I was there when she met her her real father for the very first time. I was a junior high student, and she ended up with two dads. And, but the reality is, is that so much of who I am today is dependent upon the fact that when her dad was absent and couldn't be there, and she was at risk, another man decided to step in and become her daddy. And as a result, she was raised up in the way of God, and she imparted that to me and to my brother. And as a result, a cycle, a cycle that had been a part of that family for years was broken. A spell was broken, and something incredible was able to take place. And I'm a part of that story. And guess what? You are a part of that story. And you're a part of a church that is writing that story. And we're a part of a church that's, for 2,000 years, been writing this story all over the globe. And the question is, what part of the story are you writing? What part of the story do you find yourself in? And I know in that moment when I ask that question that I run into people who are like, but you don't understand. I've got, I've got things in my life prohibiting me. I've got things in my life that I don't know how to get involved. In fact, my life is so messed up. I don't want to mess up somebody else's life. I just want to encourage you really briefly with the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. And the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, I want to put up here on the screen, but here they are. For God who said, light shines out of darkness. You want to know who God is? He's a God who shines light out of darkness. Did you catch that? He shines light out of darkness. That's impossible, apart from the power of God. The light shines out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Here's what that verse is saying. Saying, if you go point back to the Old Testament, who is the, the, the most prominent figure in the whole Old Testament was Moses. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai, he came down, and what was on his face? His face shone with the glory of God. And what Paul is saying is something better has come in the church. Something better than Moses. Something better than the law that made Moses' face shine. Something better has shown. It is being shown through his church Today, in the world, something better has taken place. And it's the face of Christ, and people see it when we live up to being a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what God wants to do. Even though we were sinners, he died for us. Listen, God wants to use you. That's what I want you to know. He wants to use you. So how do I do it? How do I become useful. Well, I want you to remember two things. I want you to hope like Habakkuk, and I want you to have faith like Abraham. What do I mean by that? Hope like Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet that wrote to the nation of Israel, and 
Israel was about to be taken over by Babylon. Good King Josiah was dead, and Habakkuk prophesies, and he's completely distraught because everything is going in the wrong direction. Society was foul. But it's here that he says something critical for you and for me. He says, Lord, I have heard the report about you. I have heard the report about you, and I fear. In other words, and I'm in awe of it. When I hear about your deeds of the past and what you've done, it makes me sit for a minute and meditate. I am in absolute awe of you, God. And then he says this, O Lord, and this is a prayer maybe you need to pray. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In other words, in this day, God, in this day, revive your work. This is the voice of the prophet, and maybe it's a voice you need to hear. We need to hope like Habakkuk, that even though the Babylonians are coming in his mind, God could do a work, God could revive God could do something incredible that if it was to be known, nobody would even believe it, but we believe that God can do it. Why? Because we remember what God has done in the past, so we know what he can do today. Remember, power will be on display through his church from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the remotest parts of the earth. And then I want you to have faith like Abraham. Why do I say that? Because when we think of the story of Abraham, Abraham simply calls, excuse me, God simply calls Abraham to do one thing. Step out in faith. Abraham, I'm going to call you from your people and everything you know to a thing you don't know, and I'm not telling you where you're going to go. Faith like Abraham. If we could hope like Habakkuk, and we could have, that God could do something, and and we could have faith like Abraham, imagine what God could do, how he could use us, how he could use you. If you want to see people that have hope like Habakkuk, and faith like Abraham, come tonight, at 6.30 to Wasilla, and you can see people who are living that out on a regular basis, coming to the aid of those who are in need. But here's what I want to leave you with, and I'll invite the the band back up onto the stage. Here's what I want to leave you with this morning. When it comes to the Bible, and the whole story of the Bible, certain things have been mentioned to characterize certain generations. For instance, when we get to Adam and Eve in the story, Adam is told to do something. He is told to cultivate the garden. Adam, I want you to cultivate. When we get to Israel, Israel is given a specific task. It's characterized by a word. Israel, I want you to conquer. They go into the land and they're supposed to conquer. Then, when we get into the New Testament, or excuse me, just before the New Testament, we have the image of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah in this post-exilic picture is told to build, because Messiah will come through the gates. What are we told to do? We are told to do one thing. Carry our cross. What does that mean, to carry our cross? Well, it's a picture of what Jesus did. Jesus carried a cross. Jesus had a yoke. Jesus had a burden. Jesus passed through the crowds, and he couldn't just not look. He couldn't look away. He had to see with compassion. He had to see with God's eyes, because he was God in the flesh, He had to see the plight of humanity, and he couldn't just walk through to the other side of the town without helping. That was his burden. That was his cross. But ultimately, his cross was singular. It was to go to a cross, an actual literal cross. And on that actual literal cross, he did a work for all of mankind. And it was a work that he understood was hard. He understood was complicated. He understood would would separate him for a period of time from his father. And yet, it was through that work 
that we actually come into fellowship with him and the Father. It was his great work, his great passion. It was his thing, which informs us of two things that I wanted to leave with you. The first is this, you have a great work to do. When the Bible says that you must carry your cross, listen to me, you must carry your cross. It isn't just talking to the whole church, it's talking to you. You in particular. You have a cross. You have something that must be done. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians that there's a path of good works laid out before the foundation of the world for you, the individual, not just for the church. You have to answer someday for whether or not you lived that path out. But here's the hope in that. There is a path of good works for you. There is something good for you to do today. Don't ever wake up and go, there's nothing good for me to do today. Before you were ever born, you were thought of. You were cared for. There was a path of good works. It's been meant for you. Carry your cross. Here's the second thing. Carrying that cross is the greatest place of intimacy I know of with my Savior. It's when I share in his suffering that he speaks loudest. It's when I take on his values, the things that he says are worth something, that I become what he designed me to become. And something happens there that cements itself in my heart that I wish everybody could experience, my kids and everybody I'm around. And if you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's in that space where we pick up our cross. We say, God, how can I live in a worthy way, a worthy manner that God does something and he speaks to us and he moves. And just like 2,000 years ago on that Temple Mount, he wanted to demonstrate in a visible fashion the power of his glory and might. He wants to demonstrate in visible fashion through your life, your committed sacrificial life, his power, his glory, and his might. And he wants to do it not just for you and for your family, but for the community and the neighbor that you've been placed next to. It's his design, his plan. So I want to leave you with a question. The question is this. When you think about the sacrifice of Christ, the path of good works that he has for you, what is it? What is it? God would have you do. Jesus gave it all. Our life has to match that if we're going to be claimed to be followers. What is it that you have to give? Take those five things. What is it that you have to give in this arena that we're drawing your attention to? As we sing, I want you to think about that. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.